Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Rachel Wolf. I'm the perioperative clinical pharmacy specialist at Barnes Jewish Hospital and Washington University Physicians in St. Louis, Missouri. And I'm joined by Dr. Ross Renew, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Merck. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional activities on this topic are available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash NMBR. So thanks for joining us today and let's get started. So Dr. Renew, thank you for being here. I wanna start off by discussing intraoperative monitoring. So during our last podcast, we discussed the exciting advancements of neuromuscular monitors. Regardless of monitoring type and monitor type, can you elaborate on where neuromuscular monitoring devices should be placed to take the most accurate measurement? Thanks, Rachel, and thanks for having me today. I'm excited about uh, having a conversation with you about something that you know I'm, I'm passionate about and one of the things that I'm actively uh, investigating are these new quantitative neuromuscular monitors that are coming to market. Quantitative neuromuscular devices have been around uh, for decades, but there's been some new technology and some new things that emerge, like you alluded to. And it makes sense for us to want to monitor uh, as an anesthesia specialty. You know, we like to uh, confirm that our interventions work. And so I'll give you an example. Like when the, when the blood pressure is low, we give a medication to treat the blood pressure. And then we don't just assume that it's worked or we don't palpate uh, the carotid artery or the radial artery and say, oh, it feels like it's better. But no, we, we reassess and use objective monitors to confirm that our intervention has, has worked and that the blood pressure has raised to an acceptable measurement. And so really that's what we're doing with these quantitative monitors, just kind of carrying that over into the realm of neuromuscular blockade management. There's a couple different modalities that are out there currently. There's a kinemiography, which measures the degree of bend of a piezoelectric sensor between the thumb and the first finger. And then there's acceleromyography, and, and these two work very similarly. Acceleromyography measures the acceleration of the thumb following stimulation of the, the ulnar nerve. And I group these together because they require a freely moving thumb. There's a couple new accelero or myography or AMG devices that are out there. One that actually utilizes Bluetooth technology. So a wireless monitor that I'm, I'm excited to get my hands on and, and, and play around with and, and look at the utility of. Uh, but then the other monitoring modality is electromyography. And this is the one that's been around the longest it is by, considered by many to be the gold standard. And that's because it's measuring action potentials across the neuromuscular junction rather than acceleration or the degree of bend of a piezoelectric sensor. And so this works when the arms are tucked, which is a very common phenomenon when where patients are coming for surgery. Uh, and uh, the placement of which is important as well. You know, all of the literature and the, the accepted uh, definition of recovery right now is measured at the hand. It's stimulating the ulnar nerve, measuring the response to the adductor pollinosis. 
As a reminder, the hand is one of the last muscle groups to recover. So if the hand has recovered and has achieved a train of four ratio greater than or equal to 0.9, then clinicians can feel confident that important muscles such as the diaphragm, the oropharyngeal muscles that prevent aspiration, that these muscles have also recovered. And so by, by having objective evidence that the hand is back and neuromuscular function is restored, we can feel confident that we've reduced the risk, significantly reduced the risk of our patients going on to have complications related to residual neuromuscular blockade. So while that is, as you mentioned, gold standard to use the hand, I often find within our ORs that sometimes they're using more of the facial nerve to actually um, to get their readings. Um, so what causes clinicians to decide to use the facial nerve? Why aren't they using the gold standard placement of the, of the hand all the time? Great question. And this may be one of the obstacles in, in monitoring, you know, while we advocate for it and the evidence uh, should compel clinicians to utilize these, the fact is the uptake and the implementation of quantitative monitorings throughout the anesthesia community is, is not where it needs to be. It's, it's incomplete. There's still a lot of clinicians not utilizing these devices. And I think it's because when we're utilizing a peripheral nerve stimulator at the hand or acceleromyography at the hand, for that instance, it, the, the device just doesn't work during the course of the operation. And so you're kind of, you're, you're at that point, really the only site you may have access to would be the face. And so we put uh, a peripheral nerve stimulator on the face. And there's a couple problems with this. The first is there's a lot of potential to have direct stimulation. And that what I mean by that is if we're putting these stimulating electrodes on the face, the location from the nerve to the muscle group of interest is very close. It's much closer than say the ulnar nerve to the thumb, which is a greater distance. And so when we're stimulating these, these nerves, when you're stimulating the facial nerve, for instance, these electrodes are very close to the orbicularis oculi, the corrugator supercilii, the muscle groups of interest. And so you have a significantly increased chance of having direct muscle, stim muscle stimulation, which significantly amplifies the response to neurostimulation. And now this is not a really useful way of determining level of blockade. Uh, the other thing that can happen, and this has been, this is an evidence, this is based on literature by a study by Stefan Thielen and uh, in, in his group, demonstrating that when we monitor at the face, we overestimate the degree of recovery. Like I said earlier, the, the facial muscles recover before the hand. And when we're utilizing the, the hand, when we're utilizing the facial muscles throughout the course of the operation, we, and then we continue to use them to confirm adequate recovery, that's a patient that's going to be left with residual neuromuscular blockade and residual weakness. And so I, I encourage all the listeners when they, at the conclusion of the operation, if you have a peripheral nerve stimulator on the face, because it's the only thing you have access to. When the case is over, you need to pull the hand out, relocate that device to the hand to confirm adequate recovery at the hand rather than using the face. And I think that as I learn more as a pharmacist, obviously not to originally being within this space and really aware of all of the intricacies that go into that four out of four number that I see documented in the anesthesia record, um, I've, I've really been 
I guess in a way, just very amazed with how much goes into it. So it's the location, the type of monitor, even the detection of fade. And in our EMR systems, there's not even oftentimes the ability to document a lot of the intricate details that really do matter, such as the presence of fade, no fade. Some sites don't even have, as we mentioned before, the quantitative monitors and the TOF ratio being automatically pulled into their EMR and different things such as that. So I'm actually was kind of wondering, given that this site can play such a, a significant role in how we interpret how recovered the neuromuscular blockade is, and subsequently, based off of those readings, we are making decisions on dosing. So as you mentioned, we are making, or the anesthesia clinicians making decisions on what supplemental doses do does my patient need, or which reversal agent is my uh, patient the best candidate for uh, related to blockade. So do you think it would actually be behoove us to perhaps um, consider discussions within our EMR, or at least with, the, with our anesthesia department, to um, perhaps add the site of neuromuscular monitoring um, in the EMR record to kind of just tag along with um, the actual reading that, is, that we uh, have as an output? Yeah, I, I think that that's potentially useful endeavor would add to the clinical picture and would be something that um, could give insight, you know, if you're trying to um, uh, develop a, a multidisciplinary um, uh, system and, and work group to, to evaluate optimal neuromuscular blockade management, that would be certainly be a piece of information that could help guide uh, clinicians. And, you know, I, I recognize that monitoring on the face is going to happen during the course of the operation, just because the, the arms get tucked. But what I would be interested in is are clinicians taking that step where they transition to the hand once the case is done and they have access to the arms, because that can have implications, like you said, on, on the dosing, you know, both neostigmine and sugamidex, the dose can be adjusted based on the level of blockade and having a consistent description in our EMR of where that level of blockade was determined could be really useful in trying to, to fine tune and improve an institution's neuromuscular blockade management strategy. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting thought. I'm not sure if they'd enjoy the extra click that I would that I would provide by doing that, but at least would I think kind of adds a, a component of accountability to it as well of, you know, that I have to document where I'm taking this from to where, you know, and it's at the end of the case and I just need to, you know, you just kind of know that the best place for that uh, reading is the is the hand. So it would be an interesting see, to see how the how the clinicians would receive that. Yeah, I, I'm sensitive towards the extra clicks, but uh, I, I heard an opportunity to plug some of these devices. Again, I'm not suggesting any one specific manufacturer, but I, most of these devices have cables that will integrate into your EMR. So it's actually less work than a peripheral nerve stimulator in a lot of instances, because obviously with a peripheral nerve stimulator, the clinician is tasked with determining the response to neurostimulation, and then they have to go manually enter in what they think they saw uh, in the chart. But a lot of these quantitative monitors will seamlessly feed that information. There's some work on the front end that, you know, getting your EMR set up to accommodate it, but it could potentially be streamlined and make things easier for clinicians. Mm -hmm. Certainly for data. Great. 
So I do know that in recent randomized double-blind trials, um, the median time for neostigmine to reverse moderate block was around about 35 minutes. Um, can range, though. Uh, we know that there's a significant patient variability with, with reversal of neostigmine. So some people can reverse in 15 to 20 minutes, while other people take, you know, anywhere from over an hour to, to actually achieve complete reversal defined as a train of four ratio greater than 0.9. So with this finding that neostigmine takes like on average 35 minutes to, to reverse, what is your opinion? And that's moderate blockade. What is your opinion on reversing moderate block with neostigmine? Um, and I define moderate block really, I think, you know, it does vary out there, but for the most part, moderate block for me is a train of four of two out of four or even three out of four is considered moderate block. Is it ever okay to use neostigmine in that situation? I discourage it. And it's, it's based on the literature that you cited. There's meta-analyses and a Cochrane uh, systematic review that demonstrates that at moderate levels of blockade, the incidence of post-operative residual weakness is greater when we utilize neostigmine. What's more controversial, though, I think is that four out of four. So if we we hit a shallow level of blockade, then I I don't think it's quite as clear. And if, if if your goal and your outcome is to prevent residual weakness, Neostigmine does still have a role at reversing shallow levels of blockade. So four out of four, but not complete recovery yet. It can serve its purpose there. But just like you said, whether it's moderate or shallow level of blockade, there is significant variability in how patients respond. You have to be willing to wait that time for them to, to for a patient to recover following neostigmine. And really that variability just to me, it speaks to, well, I'm going to use a device that takes the guessing out of it and tells me when my patients recovered prior to, to extubating them. There's a little bit more lead time with neostigmine versus sugaminex, meaning you got to give it a little sooner than uh, because it takes a little bit longer. But that variability is certainly something to consider. But really, I've just been focusing on, on postoperative residual weakness. When we start thinking about neostigmine versus sugamidex, which level of blockade to reverse. I mean, there's other outcomes that have been demonstrated in the literature recently. I know me and you, Rachel, have had conversations about some of the enhanced recovery uh, items that, that have uh, popped up comparing the, the two drugs. Does that Would that compel you to, to go to your anesthesia teams and say, hey, consider sugamidex or consider neostigmine in certain settings uh, in the era of enhanced recovery? I certainly think that the data that's coming out is is interesting. I think, you know, we're kind of a little bit at the beginning stages of of just just thinking that perhaps there are some benefits that we're not really, you know, that weren't so quite apparent as what your patient immediately um, does during the immediate recovery of their anesthesia period. So in the PACU, but yeah, the the data on bowel um, function and the return of bowel function in our patients undergoing colorectal procedures or um, intra-abdominal procedures um, specifically, I think that return of bowel function is interesting data that I think we should keep tabs on. So with that, and then also, you know, I do think that, you know, the, the utilization of Sugamidex and the, the, um, the reduced incidence of residual neuromuscular blockade 
does PIP play out into reducing postoperative pulmonary complications? Now, postoperative pulmonary complications are rare events, or at least clinically significant ones are rare events, but certainly we owe it to our patients to, if we're going to use a medication that's going to cause muscle weakness, you know, cause the potential for them to not uh, be able to protect their airway, we owe it to them to make sure it's fully reversed prior to extubating them. So whether that is we do better at monitoring and we continue using neostigmine, but we don't exudate until we ensure the patient has complete recovery, or is it that we utilize Sugamidex, which has a much lower incidence of residual neuromuscular blockade? Certainly monitoring needs to happen along with Sugamidex utilization as well. But I think we just need to increase our awareness to when we utilize medications, making sure that we utilize them in the best, I guess, the way that we know, and then ultimately, hopefully we'll have in good outcomes. And yeah, so I think, I think the ERAS, we're trying to, to increase the enhanced recovery. And I think that should be our goal with everything. So now shifting, shifting gears just a little bit within commonly arising within the dosing of Sugamidex, uh, we have some conversations out there related to, and, and it kind of is tied in a way to cost oftentimes that in order to save money on the amount of Sugamidex we use, could we perhaps use a different body weight? So we know that the FDA approved labeling recommends um, dosing Sugamidex on actual body weight. And it probably comes up into maybe more so um, at the bedside, perhaps whenever you do have an obese patient in which you're getting ready to reverse and you're calculating your dose of Sugamidex and you kind of ask yourself, is it necessary to use actual body weight, ideal body weight, or we use some kind of adjusted body weight? Um, I know pharmacy has been looking into that. We, there was a recent study that uh, was conducted by Horrell and colleagues who um, looked at a randomized control trial about 188 morbid obese obese patients, they compared actual body weight versus ideal body weight. And they found that the recovery time was one and a half minutes faster when dosed with actual body weight versus ideal body weight. So statistically significant, but maybe not clinically significant. Um, and that's kind of part of the question that I have for you. But the, we do know that not all patients recover at the same time. So there is a subgroup of patients that have prolonged recovery, um, even with Sugamidex. And so of the 10% of patients that had slowest recovery, um, the, those that were dosed on ideal body weight, they took around a median of seven and a half minutes versus 3.8 minutes. So my question to you is how clinically significant are those four additional minutes during the recovery or the emergence phase to you as a clinician? It can be accounted. If you have enough lead time, this is kind of paying attention to where you're at in the operation and knowing that if I'm giving a reduced dose to an obese patient, that it may take a little bit longer. If uh, I would feel comfortable uh, doing that with a little bit more lead. I might give it a little sooner uh, is what I mean, because it, those couple minutes, that's probably not going to be what keeps me in the operating room. There's other, a lot of other things the patient has to 
blow off their volatile anesthetic or they have to redistribute their intravenous anesthetic. And then, you know, we've got to move over We've uh, from the operating room to the, the stretcher. PACU has to have a bed available and, and be ready for us. So there's a lot of other stuff going on that um, we could hide that four minutes within the other like normal workflow going on, uh, the additional uh, timing from it. But you, like you said, it's when we start deviating from manufacturer recommendations and the obese patient, um, certainly have to point out that it's an, an off-label use and something that is an active area of investigation. However, there, there's, like you said, there's evidence that um, if we're, we're trying to save costs and reduce the amount of sugaminex that we're given, you know, uh, uh, they're an ideal body weight plus some kind of scalar component, maybe like 40% uh, that has been described in the uh, literature. And I'm referring to a, a study uh, by uh, Van, Lank, Van Lanker and colleagues. It was in the Journal of uh, Anesthesia. They used this 40% and they didn't find an increase in post-operative residual weakness. They tried a couple different uh, scalar components, uh, 20%, 40%, and they found that there was no uh, the increase, the, there was no increase in post-operative residual weakness at that 40%. But just like you said, it took a little bit longer for these patients to recover. And I would argue that that recovery time is not statistically significant or is not clinically significant, excuse me, certainly statistically significant, but not clinically significant. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that it's just important that as we consider those, at least um, as institutions, that we also encourage and just understand our monitoring practices. So if we have good monitoring practices, then perhaps, you know, implementing something to where you use an ideal or a corrected body weight may be reasonable. But certainly I would be concerned that if we um we shift too much towards the ideal body weight and we're not had, we don't have good uh, monitoring practices, then perhaps you're really utilizing or the advantages of what Sugamidex provides at its approved dosing, you might be losing and you might be, you know, pretty much now comparing apples to apples as it relates to Sugamidex and neostigmine and the incidence of residual neuromuscular blockade, which is what we think actually causes um, post-operative events and ultimately poor outcomes for our patients. So, you know, like you mentioned, the, the corrected body weight or one of those adjusted body weights might be the better option. Um, but then one can argue too, you have two vials, 200 and 500 milligram vial. If you, you know, how much difference and are you really ultimately saving, saving money um, based off of those variations and doses that, that are calculated utilizing both of those body weights. And also important to note that there was one patient in that ideal body weight group that did experience recurrization. So um, we always have to uh, be aware that if we're utilizing doses that are that are below the actual we do want to make sure that we're monitoring for that sure. so now we talked at least at last in our last podcast i really enjoyed how you mentioned you know the, the this idea and the the i guess the the by our conversations and our work together that you really kind of gained some insight into the pharmacy and anesthesiology partnership. And so what information do you think it would be wise for both groups to collaborate together to drive culture change as it relates to the use of neuromuscular blockers and reversal agents within the perioperative environment? Yeah, I, I think that there's tons of potential with such an endeavor 
the first place you have to start is you have to have local champions on both sides. So you need a, a pharmacist who's interested in neuromuscular blockade stewardship and, and optimal management, uh, as well as members of the anesthesia team that are, are interested in, in taking on this as well. But we've had conversations offline before about what this would look like and, and how you would tackle it. And I think there's a couple things that are important. You know, earlier in this episode, we talked about documenting the site of where we were monitoring. So that's certainly one step in, in uh, establishing some baseline data and to, to describe the current practice, which is an important step in any quality improvement project. And the other uh, items that I would like to see, you know, consistently documented was reversal ever, you know, the, inst- the, number, the instances of reversal being omitted in cases, not given. And if it was omitted, did the clinicians demonstrate adequate recovery? Again, I, I would not, I don't think we should be skipping reversal under any sort, unless you can document adequate recovery. And really the only way to do that is with a quantitative monitor. I want to see how often they uh, are checking the level of blockade before giving that reversal agent too, so that it would give this this multidisciplinary team some insight into, are they picking the right dose? Because there's certainly dose considerations. You know, then then you could even, you know, going back to our last question, you could do a subset analysis where you looked at the obese patient population. How, what's the current practice where, what are providers doing when they're caring for and reversing neuromuscular blockade in the obese patient? What's driving those kinds of decisions? So there's projects within projects that could really come of this. And I think the most important one that I want to see is documenting the train of four ratio, adequate recovery, train of four ratio greater than or equal to 2.9 prior to extubation. Because because, you know, that that's once we're once we take the endotracheal tube endotracheal tube with a balloon out that uh, that cuff that was keeping uh, our patients from aspirating. And we, we really need to be sure at that point that that patient has intact oral pharyngeal function that can handle their secretions. And I got to avoid aspiration events that are potentially related to uh, residual weakness. Um, that was just a couple of things off the top of my head. What, what, what about you? What, where would you, what would you want to see, uh, with this multidisciplinary effort? Yeah. You know, I think all of those are great. And I think, you know, I'm just, as you were talking, I'm just envisioning like the scorecard that, um, kind of just shows, um, the success of the department, or maybe at some point it would be in an, an anesthesia, like this is how you compare to your colleagues related to the number of cases in which you utilize reversal and the number of cases in which you document your train of four ratio at extubation, et cetera. I think all of those are great things. And then for me, you know, I certainly like to focus on, um, the quality of the patient. So patient outcomes. So how many times do we have critical respiratory events in the packing? Those are the things that I want to know, but I'm finding that it's very difficult um, to extract that out of the EMR at the point, at least at our institution. So while there's sometimes I know the patient had a critical respiratory event in the PACU, but then I look in areas of the chart and it says post-op complications. And at the time, um, it says none, you know, and it just kind of depends on who filled that out. When did that get filled out? Um, what time did this PACU critical respiratory event occur and did it capture it? Um, so I think we have some opportunity within our EMR. EMR. We're fairly new to that. So I think that that may be a little bit of a growing, um, we'll grow into it and get to that data. But I'm actually thinking that it's difficult at many institutions to really know their rate of PACU mechanical and, and uh, like 
mechanical ventilation or the critical respiratory events that develop or how many patients unanticipatedly uh, have to get admitted to the ICU. So I think that that is certainly the outcome that I'm interested in. So then you could really get to what matters when you're trying to say, yes, okay, I feel more confident that we should be spending um, more money on this reversal agent for these reasons. So that's certainly an area of interest. And then, you know, I'm a pharmacist. I like to teach. So I also just, you know, want to, even though I'm, um, I'm not the one monitoring the patients, but just making sure that we have our clinicians adequately educate, you know, they just need to make sure they have competency related to utilizing these devices. Cause I certainly feel that that has a, has a huge, you know, influence on the uptake. And, you know, when we only have, like I mentioned, a handful of those Twitch view devices. And once one of the clinician kind of gets experience with using it, I'm hearing fantastic, you know, fantastic responses on how much they like it. But at the same time, you know, how many of our clinicians have never even tried to, to, to orient themselves to utilizing the device and get with the rep and understand um, what it's capable of doing? All right. Well, you know, I think we are actually coming up to time. So it's been a, certainly a pleasure talking to you. I always enjoy and learn so much from you in our conversations. So thanks everyone for joining us for this ASHP Advantage podcast and engaging with the expert. Don't forget to check out the website at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash NMBR to view the recorded webinar, Reverse to Go Forward, Safe, neuromuscular blockade and reversal in the perioperative setting. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP's podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.